Thank you, Roger. I certainly enjoyed the Peter Collier paper, uh, very much in Peter's style, uh, about the Kennedys, and uh, Fred Siegel's uh, talk as well about the intellectual background of all this. My subject today is uh, the legends that grew up around John F. Kennedy. And these legends were very much uh, developed as a consequence of the assassination. Uh, they weren't, by and large, current while Kennedy was alive or during his presidency. They did develop uh, in really the days and weeks following the assassination. Now, uh, if one thinks of the uh, great and influential assassinations through history, uh, the Kennedy assassination is somewhat novel. If you think of, for example, Caesar's assassination, or the Lincoln assassination, or the assassination of the uh, Austrian Archduke in 1914, or the assassination of Gandhi in 1948. All these assassinations, the perpetrators were very clear. We knew who did it. They all had political motives. And by a political motive, I mean an attempt to change the structure or the policy of the state. This was clear at the time. And they had large-scale repercussions very often. The assassination of Caesar led to a long civil war in Rome between uh, two great factions, and it led to the elimination of the Republican faction in Rome. Uh, Lincoln's assassination complicated the efforts to bring the South back into uh, the Union on a constructive basis. We know the assassination of the Archduke in 1914 led to a chain of events that ignited World War I. Uh, Gandhi's assassination was linked to the battles in India and Pakistan uh, between the two religions dominating that area. The Kennedy assassination has been handed down to us as an extremely confusing and vexing affair. Uh, the political motives of the assassin uh, are controversial. Who did it is controversial. This should not be the case. Nevertheless, it is. So one of the unique features of the Kennedy assassination is the confusion that it sowed in the American body politic, very much in contrast to the great assassinations in history. Of course, all these assassinations, save Caesar, are what might be called democratic assassinations. That is, assassinations throughout history have been more or less uh, been palace affairs. It was difficult to get close to rulers. Therefore, they were done, carried out by factions inside the government, by and large. Uh, and that was necessary, too, because they didn't have firearms. So all these, these other assassinations I mentioned, uh, Lincoln, uh, the Austrian Archduke, Gandhi, Kennedy, uh, carried out by strangers for political motives with firearms. At the time of Kennedy's assassination, uh, the best-selling book at the top of the New York Times list was uh, one by a conservative named Victor Lasky called uh, JFK, The Man and the Myth. A uh, very popular book on the bestseller list for a long time, and the claim of Mr. Lasky, a conservative, 
was that uh, Kennedy was uh, an empty suit. Uh, uh, Kennedy had risen to power on the basis of very sophisticated image making, uh, directed, stage directed by Joseph Kennedy Sr. And uh, uh, as Peter Collier has pointed out, Kennedy believed that the thing itself is not important, but how the thing is seen. That's the key thing. So the manufacture of an image was very important. And uh, they said various things, and Lasky quotes this in his book, that uh, 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 in some of the early campaigns in Massachusetts, that Kennedy's opponent had no chance because all the young ladies and women around Massachusetts would love JFK and would vote for him and so on. And this is part of the manufactured image. Uh, Kennedy's Pulitzer Prize for a, a very slender volume um, published in 1956 on various uh, heroes in American history would be an example of that kind of myth-making. Very few politicians would think that it would burnish their image to win a Pulitzer Prize. Of course, people would think that today, but in 1956, when Profiles in Courage is published, uh, I'm not sure that any, any politician had ever won a Pulitzer Prize. And very few would have thought that it would be important uh, for their political career to win such a prize. Uh, but Joseph Kennedy worked very hard to make that happen. Victor Lasky's book disappeared from the bestseller list and was withdrawn by the publisher following the assassination. But surprisingly, the kind of analysis contained in that book uh, uh, was pertinent to the interpretation of Kennedy following the assassination. The historian uh, William Manchester wrote the definitive history of the assassination commissioned by the Kennedy family in a book called The Death of the President, published in 1968. Uh, that book has some flaws, but it, it does detail a lot of the important events surrounding the assassination, and the Kennedy family gave him exclusive access to the many, the many of the people who were there that day in Dallas, including Jacqueline Kennedy. Manchester writes that a series of myths and legends began to grow up around Kennedy within hours and days of his death in 1963. And he, uh, he lists some of them, uh, and uh, I'm going to talk about some of them. Uh, I think a legend, the term legend is probably more appropriate to this situation. A legend, the uh, historians tell us, is a tale, a kind of a folk tale, uh, that has uh, aspects of reality attached to it. In other words, there are things that might have happened. Uh, but didn't necessarily happen. And they incorporate some of the conventional opinions uh, held by a people. Uh, they, uh, in other words, they're, they're tales that might have happened which incorporate key elements of a culture. Legend of Sleepy Hollow, we know. If one is not a believing Christian, one might say Christianity is a kind of a legend, an event that happened in history which incorporates a lot of uh, assumptions uh, in beliefs of a culture. Well, what were the legends that grew up around Kennedy? Uh, well, one legend, Ira's written very well on this, was that he 
was a great liberal idealist, a great peacemaker, a great believer in racial justice and civil rights. He was a, the prototypical liberal statesman. Uh, another was that, and this is connected to the assassination, that he was a martyr for civil rights. Indeed, he was a martyr for these liberal ideals. This is why he was killed. Uh, and then another was that the Kennedy White House was a magical time uh, representing the highest ideals of uh, intellectual judgment, devotion to peace and justice, and it was a magical time that could never be repeated, and that in the loss of Kennedy, America had lost uh, its best chance uh, to rectify all the evils in its society. And here, of course, we're getting somewhat into the, uh, the Camelot legend of King Arthur, JFK, in other words, a, a modern-day knight. So these are, these are some of the ideas that begin to float to the surface uh, in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. And one of the things that I've written and others have written, and Epstein has certainly written about this, is that all these legends are quite disconnected from the facts of the case. Uh, JFK having been shot by a communist. Uh, so the odd thing about the development of these myths is that one, in modern secular America, they're believed. How is it, how is it that a set of ideas that are so disconnected from the facts can be so widely believed in a society as secular and rational as ours. Maybe we're not as secular and rational as we think we are. A second aspect of it is that these tended to be believed by the people who claim to be the most secular and rational people in the country, namely the liberals and the intellectuals. Fred has talked about this, spoken about this very well. Uh, how is it that the as I say, the most critical and rational people believe the most absurd things. Now, these are deeply held views because people like me at Epstein, others who pointed out this contradiction, wait a second, this doesn't square with the facts, uh, we're often very much reviled and hated for pointing this out. You're being impertinent. Uh, it's. Uh, it's inappropriate to point this out. Uh, it's hurtful, and so on. This is, just a, this is just a reflection of how deeply held some of these views are. Well, how actually did this happen? So let, let me dilate on that and give a little bit of interpretation as to how this, how this could have happened. Fred has touched on this one idea, which is that for most of the 20th century, liberal reformers and left-wing reformers have always believed that they were on the side of the people. They were for democracy against the corporate interests or whatever groups had seized control of the country, and they were, they were representing the people. Even the people didn't necessarily understand it, they were on the side of the people. They believed in the people, the proletariat, as Fred called them. 
uh, in Marxist terminology, the liberals had a different view, but the progressives were very much elitists and experts, but nonetheless they believed they were serving the people. Two things happened in the post-war period to undermine that faith. One was Hitler. Hitler represents the uh, inversion of democracy, a totalitarian democracy, if you want to call it, reactionary democracy. The masses have propelled Hitler to power. And so maybe there is something in the masses that uh, uh, can undermine democracy. And uh, we can't have such great confidence that the masses will come to the right conclusion. We need to be somewhat skeptical of the masses. The other thing in America, of course, was McCarthyism. McCarthy develops a mass movement around this anti-communist idea. There are communists in the government. They've infiltrated the government. And uh, they, they're threatening to reverse and overturn even the New Deal. So they now be, the mass has now become a kind of a threat. So you get this analysis in the 1950s of the radical right. Uh, it's a mass-based movement. You don't find them in elite circles, in journalism, or in the best colleges and universities. In fact, these groups are attacking the elites. And they're not conservatives, they're radicals. Because conservatives respect authority, and they respect tradition. And these people don't respect authority, and indeed, they want to reverse the New Deal. Whereas any good conservative should want to uphold the New Deal as the new tradition that's been established. So, you get these two things happening. When Kennedy takes power, of course, the two great events, the two great things going on are the Cold War and the Civil Rights Crusade, these two domestic and foreign issues <coughs> that Kennedy has to wrestle with. And the Cold War does heat up in the late 1950s. Uh, we have, uh, of course, the Castro Revolution in 1959 taking power in this country just a few miles off the coast of the United States and align with the Soviet Union. And we have in the spring of 1960, uh, United States reconnaissance airplane, the U-2, shot down over the Soviet Union, which creates an international episode which leads to a blowing up of a summit conference between Khrushchev and Eisenhower. Uh, and there's a great embarrassment for the United States. Uh, you have, in 1961, the Bay of Pigs, the aborted invasion of Cuba. Uh, you have, uh, in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the Soviet Union places offensive missiles in Cuba. And we come very close to a nuclear exchange in 1962. Kennedy indeed goes on television in October of 1962 and says that we found these, we know that these weapons are in, have been placed in Cuba, uh, these offensive weapons, and uh, any attack on the United States uh, from Cuba will be regarded as an attack from the Soviet Union and will justify a full retaliatory attack on the Soviet Union. So those are very strong words uh, in any context. Uh, basically, Kennedy is threatening a nuclear exchange with, against the Soviet Union should uh, Castro attack or so the, uh, any, uh, any weapons get launched from Cuba. Robert McNamara, I think, uh, recently in the 1990s, uh, went back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and he, he revealed that, and I think that this was known at the time, that when Kennedy 
put up the blockade against Cuba to keep any further uh, shipments of weapons to come into Cuba. When the, uh, the United States put up that blockade, Castro claimed to the Soviet leaders that that was justification to send a nuclear attack against the United States. So uh, actually the situation in that sense was much more dangerous than we thought it was in 1962. Fortunately, the Soviet Union blinked. Uh, they turned their ships back, pulled the missiles out, and Kennedy, in settlement of that crisis, had to implicitly promise, I will stop these efforts to overthrow Castro. Uh, and it was probably not an accident that a year or so later, Khrushchev was removed from power in the Soviet Union. That was a, a kind of an audacious act uh, to have brought the world to the brink of nuclear war and then have to stand back. So you have all that going on. That's one narrative event going on. And Kennedy, Kennedy uh, has a different kind of Cold War policy than Eisenhower had. Eisenhower had a policy rooted in deterrence. Kennedy, I think, had the idea, Ira writes about this some, that you could, uh, the Cold War had to be fought in the arena of ideas. You've got to challenge the Soviet Union uh, and world communism as a system of ideas. Our system is better. The system of freedom is better. We're not just going to deter the Soviet Union. We're going to challenge them in the realm of ideas and in the third world and prove that our system of, uh, of liberty is superior to the Soviet system. And this is one of the things that he does when he goes to Berlin in 1963 is to contrast these two systems in East and West Berlin cold, dark, and gray, East Berlin, vital, vibrant, growing West Berlin. Let them come to Berlin. So this was a matter of very great concern to <coughs> the Soviet Union to have this kind of new aggressive uh, attack on their system uh, from Kennedy. Of course, the other, other thing going on, which the liberals very much focus on, is the civil rights movement. Uh, there was a, a belief among a lot of liberals that this Cold War business is kind of a diversion from the more important uh, agenda of domestic reform with civil rights being at the forefront of it. Kennedy didn't really believe that. Iris makes that case very clearly. Uh, Kennedy is very much focused on the Cold War and the South was a very important element of the Kennedy Democratic constituency. Kennedy had just barely beaten Richard Nixon in 1960, and he did so by holding the South together. And if the South should divert, uh, desert the Democratic Party, it would be very difficult uh, to win a national election. And Kennedy was very mindful of that. However, events in the South did force his hand uh, in 1963. Uh, and Kennedy does endorse a civil rights bill in June of 1963, basically a public accommodations bill, which outlaws segregation in transporta interstate transportation, hotels, restaurants, public things of this nature. Supreme Court had already struck down segregation in public education, but the South had resisted uh, those orders. Uh, Kennedy's hand was somewhat forced because beginning in 1960 or 61, 
uh, Martin Luther King and others in the South began to challenge the caste system in the South with sit-ins in restaurants and hotels. They go into a segregated restaurant, ask to be served. We can't serve you. It's against the law for you to be here. Get out. No, we're staying. I'm going to call the police. The police come and drag them out. This is all now reported on television. And uh, uh, because uh, beginning uh, in the 40s and 50s, blacks had moved to the north in large cities, uh, in northern cities in large numbers, they could now mobilize northern politicians to put pressure on the south, uh, which was developing in the 1960s. Big protests in Birmingham in uh, May of 1963, police used fire hoses and sick police dogs on these demonstrators. And this uh, wins a great deal of sympathy for, these, for the civil rights movement across the North. In June of 1963, Medgar Evers, a civil rights leader, is assassinated in his driveway uh, in Mississippi by the Ku Klux Klan. And Kennedy invites the family to the White House uh, when he announces his support for the civil rights bill in 1963. In other words, Kennedy's hand is now forced two and a half years into his presidency. In August of 1963, there's a massive march on Washington uh, in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Several hundred thousand uh, people march in support of the Civil Rights Bill. And this is where Martin Luther King gives his famous I Have a Dream speech. That escalates matters somewhat. And Kennedy didn't want this uh, demonstration to take place. Uh, but afterwards, he invites the leaders including Martin Luther King, uh, to the White House uh, because it went off peacefully and uh, he thought it would probably help him win some support for the Civil Rights Bill, which was a moderate bill, by the way. Uh, in September of 1963, the Ku Klux Klan blows up a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, killing four young girls. Uh, again, now, you, in the commentary in the country, you get this idea that things are out of control in the South, that there's a spirit of lawlessness in the land, uh, mainly oriented to this, the violence against the civil rights movement. Adlai Stevenson then goes to Dallas in October of 1963 and uh, to give a speech in support of the United Nations. He's the, US, the United States ambassador to the UN. And He's now greeted by a counter-demonstration. Uh, uh, so he's going to celebrate United Nations Day. There's a counter-demonstration called Anti-United Nations Day. Uh, and uh, there is a, a, a retired general by the name of Edwin Walker, uh, who is the uh, chairman of the Dallas chapter of the John Burt Society, and a figure that very much in the news at that time who leads that event. One of the things Walker wants to do is to overthrow Castro, and he thinks that Kennedy is being too timid in these efforts. Of course, it's unknown at the time that the Kennedy, the Kennedys are still uh, uh, clandestinely trying to assassinate Castro. This is not known, publicly anyway. Uh, so Stevenson, when he gives a speech, he's heckled, he's booed, he's spat upon, and when he comes out of the auditorium, someone hits him over the head with a cardboard sign. And this is a national scandal. I often like to say that uh, uh, 
the demonstrations on college campuses eight or ten years later would have made this sort of thing look like child's play. But this scandalized uh, the liberal press at the time that Stevenson was treated with such disrespect. We know what happened to Henry Kissinger when he went to Harvard in 1968 or whenever it was. Uh, so the Kennedy people say, is it safe to go to Dallas, hotbed of uh, right-wing activity against the United Nations, against civil rights, against school integration, anti-communist? It's not a good place for you to go to try to uh, repair this breach between the liberal and conservative faction in the state. But as, as I said, Texas was probably going to be necessary since now Kennedy had supported the Civil Rights Bill. He was likely to lose a lot of states in the Deep South, so they really wanted to keep Texas. Um, and so this is the script that uh, around which Kennedy's visit to Texas is structured. Uh, you have, as Fred has said, have an intellectual idea that the danger is from the right. There's a popular book at the time called Danger on the, from the Right about right-wing <laughs> extremism. And you have all these events that have more or less written a script for what's going to happen in Dallas. And when Kennedy is shot, that's how it was interpreted. So, uh, you know, one one vignette of this, the word went forth that Kennedy was shot and everybody immediately said it was a right winger who did it, Dallas did it. So I like to, uh, I wrote about this in my book, I like to, here's the, you can't see this, I know this, but uh, this is the front page of the New York Times on the day after the assassination, November 23rd, 1963. So you see the banner headline across the front. And then in the middle, Right here, there's a news story, news reporting about the assassin, accused assassin who's been arrested. And it says, uh, a leftist is accused. And uh, the headline goes on to say, figure in pro-Castro group is charged, policeman slain. Oswald killed a policeman there trying to escape. Um, and then the story goes on to report all of Oswald's communist connections, his defection to the Soviet Union, his work on behalf of Castro over that summer, and other things, the evidence against him, the gun and the bullets and all this, most of which has held up, I think, over time. I think, Edmund, you might speak to that as to whether or not it, that evidence has held up, but I think it has. Those are the facts. Next to it is a narrative interpretation written by James Reston, the dean of American journalism at the time, and the uh, Washington Bureau Chief of the New York Times. And uh, Mr. Reston writes what might be called an interpretive column. What does this mean? And it says, uh, the headline is, Why America Weeps. And it says, Kennedy, victim of violent streak he sought to curb in the nation. Uh, in other words, Reston is putting this in the context of all the civil rights violence that I've mentioned. And he writes that America wept tonight not alone for its dead young president, but for itself. The grief was general, for the worst in the nation had prevailed over the best. The indictment extended beyond the assassin for something in the nation itself. Some strain of madness and violence had destroyed the highest symbol of law and order. And the irony of the president's death is that his short administration was devoted almost entirely to attempts to curb the streak of violence in the American character. 
when historians get around to assessing his three years in office, it's likely they will be impressed with this, his efforts to restrain those who wanted to be more violent in the Cold War and those who wanted to be more violent in the racial war at home. And from the beginning to the end of his administration, he was trying to tamp down the violence of extremists from the right. So you have these two interpretations. You have Oswald the communist is shot, or is the accused of being the assassin. You've got a lot of evidence for that. And then you have this interpretation that Kennedy is a victim of this violent streak which is loose in the country. Which one of these is going to win out? Well, uh, it wasn't immediately the case, but over the long run, it's the second narrative interpretation that begins to win out, the idea of Kennedy as a martyr to a violent culture. Uh, that begins to be the interpretation that's widely accepted, especially among liberals across the country. That's one of the myths, because the, the Kennedy assassination was what might be called a discontinuous event at least from the standpoint of liberals. Discontinuous in the sense that it ran completely against the grain of every cultural assumption that they had. Every cultural assumption that they had was that the danger comes from the right. It's a, uh, and they had argued against McCarthy that yes, communism is an international problem because of the Soviet Union. It's not a domestic problem. There are no communists in the United States. There might be some here and there, but it's not a domestic threat to the country. That's what they argued. Now a communist has stepped up and assassinated the president. How, how do people deal with discontinuous events when their cherished beliefs are contradicted by facts? Uh, a psychologist by the name of Leon Festinger wrote a book called, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, somebody, when prophecy fails, and what's the name of the psychological contradiction that people have? Okay, cognitive dissonance is the idea. Thank you, Edward. Um, it's always good to have at Epstein sitting nearby. Uh, and so he, when prophecy fails, was about a group of people who believed the world was coming to an end on a particular date. So they assemble on a hilltop or a mountaintop somewhere where they're going to ride this out somehow. And it doesn't happen. What do you do when this cherished belief? Well, they don't say, well, we're wrong. Uh, they just say, we're gonna, it's going to happen on another date and we'll do it again. So I, I think the idea here is that when a communist shoots the president, when everybody believes that this event, is, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen from the right, they don't say, no, we're wrong. A communist did it. They try to find a way to maintain these two ideas, uh, which is, turns out to be very difficult to do. And how do you do that? How do you maintain this idea that the right's the great danger to the country and to the president when a communist has shot the president? They don't bring this off very well, I'd say, over the long run. Here are some of the other comments that are articulated by leaders of the United States in that weekend after the assassination. And one thing I would say is that these events, for anyone who lived through them, were so searing that they could never forget them. That is to say, you know, the president being shot, someone has filmed it, those photographs of the assassination are published in major magazines. 
the lion in state, the widow, the little boy saluting the coffin, the march to Arlington National Cemetery, the eternal flame affixed to the gravesite. These are all images that once they're implanted in someone's mind, they could never get them out. And people, I think, were prone to, uh, to <coughs> interpret these events in, in somewhat legendary or mythical terms. They were looking for something, uh, something morally uplifting, some meaning to be applied to a series of events that were very ugly. And this, this is a factor as well. So uh, here is the head of the National Cathedral speaking, and these are all quoted in the newspapers at the time where I got them. We have been present at a new crucifixion. <clears throat> this actually is Woodrow Wilson's uh, grandson, Francis Sayre, who speaks at the National Cathedral on that Sunday morning. The assassination occurs on a Friday. We've been present at a new crucifixion. All of us had a hand in the slain of the president. By our silence and inaction, by our readiness to allow evil to be called good and good evil, by our toleration of ancient injustices, we have all had a part in this assassination. Chief Justice Earl Warren said on that day, a great and good president has suffered martyrdom as a result of the hatred and bitterness that has been injected into the life of our nation by bigots. Earl Warren would go on to chair the commission that investigated the assassination. And you know, many people said he was, uh, he was covering this up, covering up this right-wing plot. Warren, more than anyone else, had a reason to find a right-wing plot in the assassination of the president. Um, he said at, at a eulogy for the president on November 24th, it is not too much to hope that the martyrdom of our beloved president might soften the hearts of those who would recoil from assassination, but who do not shrink from spreading the venom which kindles the thoughts of it in others. Senator Mike Mansfield, in a eulogy that weekend, said, JFK gave that we might give of ourselves, and this makes no sense, that we might give to one another until there would be no room for the bigotry, hatred, and prejudice, and arrogance which converge in that moment of horror to strike him down. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell, who was a representative from Harlem and a reverend, said on the 24th, two days later, weep not for Jack Kennedy, but weep for America. Weep for a land that does things to people because they're black. Weep for a country that can bomb seven churches in one day. I'm not sure what that last reference to. I believe it was a reference to the Birmingham bombing. Charles Taft, the mayor of Cincinnati, and Pat Brown, the governor of California, announced a series of candlelight vigils that weekend in cities across the country. And in announcing it, they said, we must pledge the end of intolerance and to affirm that such a tragedy shall never happen again. The demented mind of the assassin who took the life of JFK in Dallas is no different from the mind of the murderers who snuffed out the lives of those four little girls in Birmingham. These shameful blots on America's conscience will continue until America's conscience speaks out. Grace and Kirk, the president of Columbia University, said, we must apply more energy against the extremists and their poison. He'd been a critic of McCarthy, by the way. The rector of St. Bartholomew's Church in New York said, the assassination was the result of the sin in the hearts of man in this country and the world over. That is a sin of prejudice. Uh, Pravda, the Soviet, uh, official Soviet newspaper, said, uh, announced that night or the day after, 
Reactionaries are using the assassination to fan anti-Soviet and anti-Cuban hysteria when the crime was committed by racists, the Ku Klux Klan, and Burt Society members. And TASS, another Soviet publication, said, Senator Barry Goldwater and other extremists of the right cannot escape moral responsibility for the president's death. Surprisingly, Lyndon Johnson and the new administration took the, more or less the line the Soviet Union was taking. They were very fearful that the public would demand some retaliation against the Soviet Union or Cuba if the public believed that a communist was responsible for the killing of the president. And so the official view was that the ideological motives in the assassin, assassination of President Kennedy had to be played down. And it's best to divert attention to other things. What? The radical right, whatever you want to call it. Dallas was responsible. Surprisingly, this point of view that, which emerged on the weekend of the assassination, although contradicted by the facts, and there were various people that said, wait a second, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but they were ignored, has had enormous amount of staying power down to this 50th anniversary. And this, of course, plays into the idea that JFK is a martyr to the cause of civil rights. He's been brought down by these right-wing anti-civil rights people. And Taylor Branch, uh, a noted historian and a Pulitzer Prize winner for this book that I'm about to quote from, uh, History of the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King, this was published in the early 90s, has this quotation. And again, this is a very respected writer and his book won a Pulitzer Prize. He says, he writes, in death, the late president gained credit for much of the purpose that King's movement had forced upon him in life. No death had ever been like his. Reinhold Niebuhr called him an elected monarch. In a mass purgative of hatred, bigotry, and violence, the martyred president became a symbol of healing opposites. And by this and other effects of mourning, Kennedy acquired the Lincoln-esque mantle of a unifying crusader who had bled against the thorn of race. Now there's not much in that paragraph that is true if one is going to judge truth in relationship to the actual facts. Uh, Kennedy was not, Kennedy did not bleed against the thorn of race. The facts say that a communist shot him. Uh, and uh, he was not a martyr to the civil rights movement in terms of the facts. But as I say, it was difficult to point this out because people would say you're being impertinent. Uh, you were being disrespectful to the president if you bring up the facts. And once a popular person, in terms of these searing images, has been killed, it's very difficult sometimes to raise one's hand and say, well, what about the facts? And this is how legends are born. Uh, if we want to use that term legend loosely, someone, someone once said that grief nourishes myth, or grief nourishes legends as people try to interpret and understand and explain this. And of course, the most moving image or legend surrounding Kennedy and the Kennedy assassination was the so-called Camelot imagery that Jackie Kennedy circulated. No one referred to the Kennedy White House as Camelot while he was alive. You want me to wrap up? Uh, uh, I'm just getting started. <laughs> um, speaking about Castro. Uh, 
So uh, uh, this, was, this became a very weird uh, legend that it got attached to Kennedy. Nonetheless, it was also something that became believed, that was believed. As I say, it didn't, it wasn't applied to him while he was alive. This emerged on the weekend of the assassination and was orchestrated really by Jackie Kennedy. And uh, the Kennedy family did not want John F. Kennedy remembered as a martyr to the Cold War. That they did not want. They wanted him remembered as an Abraham Lincoln. And they made that very clear. Um, I think, I believe, when Jackie Kennedy heard uh, Earl Warren make this comment of, about bigots, she made sure he was invited to give the official eulogy on that Sunday morning at the Capitol. She liked that framework. And it may well be for that one of those, that reason that he was appointed to head the commission as well. Uh, so this is a very strange story in itself because Camelot was a very popular Broadway musical at the time that had a successful run from 1960 to 1963 on Broadway. And it starred Richard Burton, uh, Julie Andrews, Robert Goulet, Roddy McDowell. Uh, and there were many famous tunes that came out of this. And the week after the assassination, Jackie Kennedy invited the journalist Theodore White to Hyannis to, uh, uh, for an interview. And White was going to use this as a foundation for an essay that would appear in a special issue of Life magazine that would appear the following week dedicated to the late President Kennedy. And so White made his way up there. And White was thought to be a friendly journalist from the standpoint of the Kennedy family. Uh, he had known Joseph Kennedy at Harvard in the late 1930s. But more importantly, he'd written this book called The Making of the President 1960, which was a best-selling chronicle of that campaign in which Kennedy was portrayed very positively and his opponent, Richard Nixon, was portrayed in a very negative light. And so it stood to reason that Theodore White would be a friendly journalist to convey this image. And so he made his way up there. And in that course of this discussion, uh, Mrs. Kennedy said that uh, she and President Kennedy uh, were very fond of this Broadway musical. And at night, they would listen to a public popular recording that was made of the music from the play, and uh, the lyrics of which were written by Alan J. Lerner, who was Kennedy's classmate at Harvard also. He was especially fond of the title tune and of the concluding couplet to that tune, which said, don't let it be forgot that once there was a, a spot for one brief shining moment, that was Camelot, referring to King Arthur's legendary castle. And this was the Kennedy White House, and she said, well, uh, there may be great presidents again, but there'll never be another Camelot, this magical time uh, of uh, kind of Arthurian uh, presidency. And this appeared in the essay that White wrote for the issue of Life that hit the newsstands on December 3rd. At that time, Life had a circulation of around 7 million weekly, and it reached probably 30 or 40 million people weekly. And since this was a special commemorative issue with Kennedy's picture on the cover, it might have reached as many as 50, 60, 70 million Americans. It got widespread circulation and repeated. This is where the Camelot mythology came from, from that essay that uh, Theodore White wrote on the basis of that interview. 
the uh, the play of the Camelot was taken, adapted from a longer novel called The Once and Future King, written by a British author by the name of T.H. White, no relation to the journalist, published in 1958, but it was written in four parts between 1938 and 1958. Many of you seen The, uh, the Sword and the Stone as the first chapter of that. Uh, it talks about Merlin, King Arthur's education at the hands of Merlin, uh, the creation of the Knights of the Round Table, and eventually the falling apart of the kingdom due to uh, infidelity and disloyalty. Uh, however, the Once and Future King is a modern retelling of the Arthurian legend in the sense that the traditional versions uh, by um, Thomas Mallory in, in the 16th century and by Tennyson in the 19th century celebrated knighthood, chivalry, bravery, uh, especially bravery in war. The knights were brave warriors. Uh, uh, White's uh, modern version of King Arthur ridicules war and makes fun of it as an absurd enterprise. Uh, he says uh, national boundaries make no sense. Uh, war is, a, war is a, 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 he makes fun of chivalry. And Lancelot, who's portrayed as a very brave and handsome warrior in the traditional tales, and this tale is a somewhat ungainly and ugly figure. So in this version, King Arthur is a modern peacemaker. And that's the, the vision of John F. Kennedy that uh, Mrs. Kennedy tries to leave behind, that, Ken that Kennedy is a, a modern kind of King Arthur, but a peacemaker. So you get these, you get these legends that he's, he dies for civil rights, He's a liberal idealist, and he's a modern kind of King Arthur, all circulating around Kennedy. And as I say, widely believed. And still somewhat widely believed, you know, 50 years later. And legends are the kinds of things that are difficult for facts to penetrate, I think. Uh, uh, especially pertinent in the development of liberalism in the 60s and, and afterwards was this idea that Kennedy was a victim of American culture. And uh, there have been some people who've tried to write to suggest that this is a, this idea that we have killed our leader, this is an element of legends that have, uh, that have been true somewhat throughout the ages. A young leader dying young is an aspect of uh, many legends, including Christianity, and also including the King Arthur legend. The idea seems to be that uh, it's important for the, the leader, the revered leader, to die young, because otherwise he would age and die of natural causes somehow, and that would undermine the vitality of the civilization that he represents as a consequence of which is necessary for that person to die young. That's probably reading too much into this. Um, nonetheless, I think, in terms of the legends surrounding Kennedy, uh, uh, these have had a very long shelf life, and you can see somewhat how they could happen just because of the searing nature of the event and the shock and the wish for people to make sense of this event 
in terms of all of the assumptions that they had developed in the post-war period. Thank you.